All right, welcome back, everyone. This is the Didactic Mind podcast, and this is Didactic Mind episode 77, The Forge of Vulcan. I'm getting uh, somewhat close to the uh, full century here with uh, 100 episodes, but uh, that's some ways off here, 23 weeks. Uh, that's going to be quite a while, <laughs> but uh, six months. Uh, but yeah, about six, a uh, little less than six months from now, uh, I will have reached a full hundred episodes, uh, almost two years worth of podcasting, hard to believe it. But um, yeah, uh, it's been interesting and I intend to continue doing this for as long as I can, for as long as uh, big tech censors um, won't, well, they will try to shut me down, of course. Uh, they will try to uh, stop me from getting the word out, but that is why we build our own platforms. That is why we try to create our own web presences and our own um, just networks um, in order to get the, the message out. Uh, as, as uh, what's his name says in Serenity, they can't stop the signal now, and they really can't. They can't stop the signal. The Empire or the Alliance or whatever you want to call it keeps trying to suppress people like us, and they can't. Um, and they can't really, uh, if you're hearing a lot of pinging in the background, it's just somebody texting me on WhatsApp. Uh, I have WhatsApp for PC on, on this, uh, on this thing, so that's why. Uh, at any rate, basically, um, as I was saying, uh, they keep trying to suppress the information and prevent us from speaking out and speaking our mind. And they're very good at that. And the reason they're very good at that is because they can find you uh, pretty easily, and, um, you know, among other things, obviously. Uh, if you are surfing the web unprotected, then you're making it very easy for them to figure out who you are and where you are. Um, don't do it. Don't do that. Don't give them that power. Use a VPN. Use something like Surfshark, which I've promoted heavily on this site and will continue to do so because they're great. Um, they're a really great VPN. They will give you everything you need for easily the best price in the industry. I mean, in terms of servers, I think they're second or third uh, in in terms of just sheer number of servers that you can connect to. Uh, in terms of features, they are unbeatable. Uh, in terms of number of devices, well, it's unlimited. So for the cost of, what, $2.49 a month for two years, that's, again, as I keep saying, the cup of, the cost of a bad cup of Starbucks coffee every month. Just forego that one cup of coffee every month and you will have the protection and the foundation that you need in order to build your own business, your own website, your own whatever online. However you want to build it, you can say what you want, you can think what you want, um, and you can find what you want without restrictions. You have the ability and the freedom to do things that you otherwise couldn't do. So make sure you get a, a copy of Surfshark if you don't have it already. Um, that's good. The link for that is down below. Click on it and uh, make sure you subscribe because it is a very, very worthwhile investment. And you'll be helping me out too in the process. Um, I just need a bit of tea. It's... Uh, Ah, boy, that does taste good. Uh, it, it's been a somewhat cold day. Cold but pleasant. Um, very beautiful outside these days where I am. I'm not going to say where, obviously. But, um, you know, 
sunshine in these parts for more than a few days is unusual and we have been unusually blessed so literally uh, enjoy it while you can um, not it's not quite haymaking weather not yet if you want to be literal uh, but it is uh, nice and warm and dry although today was a bit colder and uh, as for today's topic well as I've been talking about over the last few months, uh, really the last few podcast episodes, I am these days much more about helping our brothers to fight and to push forward in life than I am about sitting around and complaining about things. Um, I've had my fill of belly aching for quite some time now. I'm not interested in sitting here and bitching about how bad things have gotten. Look, guys, I know it's bad. I know it's awful. Things seem to be getting worse by the day out there. Um, it's really ridiculous how far and how quickly we have given up our freedoms uh, in the face of governments that very clearly have no clue what they're doing. I mean, at least on the surface, they don't have a clue what they're doing. Underneath the surface, if you look particularly through Christian eyes, you can see and understand that there is a malign intelligence a very cruel and very dangerous intelligence guiding these actions and these movements forward. This is not new to anybody who's a Christian. This is obvious. This is basic stuff. But it's important to understand and where that comes from. And I have laid out that understanding uh, for you in the past few Didactic Mind podcast episodes. I also wrote an article this week uh, entitled "Build Your Brothers," uh, not entitled, titled "Build Your Brothers Up," and it talked about why we should um, try to help our brothers wherever possible. And the focus of that article was all about strategies designed to help us come together as a community, as a group, and it was. But I, I wrote it to give inspiration and hope to others. And a number of conversations that I've had in that time, or during the last few weeks, I should say, have really focused around morale and testing and why we are pushed the way we are. And uh, I was outside today and enjoying the weather and uh, really just having a good time, you know, getting some proper vitamin D. And listening to a song called The Fires of Olympus by a great band called Shadow Killer, a Christian metal band, I think, um, from the States. Very, very, very good. Uh, I highly recommend uh, their last two albums, Guardians of the Temple. Well, that, that was uh, the latest one is called Dark Awakening, and the previous one was called Guardians of the Temple. Um, phenomenal albums. And I also recommend, by the way, now that I'm talking about music, um, Power Theory, Force of Will, that's their album. Power Theory is the band. Uh, all three albums, I mean, they've just been on constant rotation along with Iron Maiden because, of course, Iron Freaking Maiden uh, for the last week. And it's just amazing music. And the last track on Dark Awakening is called The Fires of Olympus. And it's all about um, essentially an army marching on the seat of the gods uh, with weapons forged for them by the god Hephaestus or Vulcan, depending on whether you're Greek or Roman, obviously. And um, 
the point of that song is to show people that hey there's there's a you know that there are tests out there which Vulcan himself endured so this is why I wanted to title the podcast The Forge of Vulcan it's not just because you know it's a cool sounding title it is but there's a reason for it when you look whether you look at the Bible or you look in daily life or you look at the writings of the Stoics or anybody else that you can think of that you admire what you will in- invariably find is that these were and are people who were tested to and beyond the limits of human endurance. If you look at the Bible, what is the common pattern with every single prophet, every single one, from Moses all the way to Jesus? What was the common pattern? Every single one had to endure terrible tests. Everyone. You look at Moses, what did he have to endure? He basically killed a man um, in Egypt, uh, and he fled, endured exile from everything he'd ever known. He was a prince. Uh, he was a prince of Egypt, and he was reduced to poverty and penury, and uh, lived in the desert with, um, well, with the, the, the Canaanites, as far as I understand it. Uh, I'm probably wrong about that. I mean, look, I, I'm not a biblical scholar. I, I, I should probably go read up on the, the relevant passages in Exodus, but as far as I'm aware, um, he fled into the desert and, uh, uh, yeah, the Midianites, that's it, the Midianites. I really should know this. Um, I apologize, it's my fault. But, um, yeah, he, he, goes, he goes and flees to the land of Midian, and where is Midian? Uh, the land of Midian um, is somewhere in the northeast, northwest Arabian Peninsula, apparently. Um, which means that if you look at um, where Goshen is, that's in the area of Egypt where, uh, I, as I mentioned in a few episodes past, that's the area of Egypt that people have been excavating recently, and they've discovered uh, remnants of a very, very large and thriving Canaanite uh, civilization, a Semitic civilization of Sem- uh, Semites, you know, people from the land of Canaan, in the Middle Kingdom period of Egypt's history. Um, Moses had to flee to Midian, live out in the desert, become a shepherd, and he stayed there for decades. And he came back and had to endure another series of terrible privations, another round of suffering, in order to free his people from um, the yoke of enslavement under Pharaoh. Uh, I'm not going to say it was Ramesses, because the evidence that we have today indicates to us that Ramesses, this, this Ramesses character, is a later insertion into the book of Exodus. It's an anachronism similar to, because it appears twice, actually. It appears in Genesis 47, um, which doesn't make any sense because the word Ramesses didn't exist at the time of Joseph. Like it, it, it's doesn't, it does not compute. Um, and then if you look later on in, uh, in, in Exodus, there are several re- references to Ramesses as the Pharaoh of Egypt who chased, um, Moses and his people out in the desert after God sent all the plagues and, and, and destructions and so on. Uh, to Egypt itself. Uh, but at any rate, whoever that pharaoh was, 
it almost certainly was not Ramses II, the, the greatest conquering pharaoh of the New Kingdom. It almost certainly was not him. But Moses had to endure that set of privations and suffering. He went out in the desert. He stayed in the desert, um, came back, freed his people, took them out across the Red Sea, uh, across into uh, the wilderness of Paran in Zin, um, and he was stuck wandering there for 40 years. Well, why? Because you know, the Israelites really pissed off God and started worshipping uh, the Baals and the idols and so on. Uh, he could never see the Promised Land. He could not enter the land of Canaan. What happened to his successors? Well, Joshua had to fight his way through the entire land of Canaan. And what did he do before he began his conquests? He prayed. The first thing he did was he prayed to God for deliverance and for help. And it, it, God gave it to him. Uh, Gideon, what did he have to endure? He had 300,000 men, thereabouts, you know, 300,000 people, that he had to protect. Uh, God basically said, remove these people and these people and these people from my sight because they are not worthy. Anyone who goes down to the water and drinks this way is not worthy and so on. Anyone who takes the water and drinks like a man is worthy of me. And of the, of those, of that remnant, there were only 300 people. And God said, by these 300, I will deliver you, uh, I will deliver you from your enemies. Something like that. Um, book of Judges, if I'm not mistaken. Then you look at uh, King David. I mean, the greatest, the exemplar of all it means to be a son of God up until Jesus came along. What did he have to endure? Treachery, betrayal, uh, exile, constant threats to his life, constant war, constant um, threat of death. He had to grow up really fast. Every single one of these men was tested. Every single one was forged into a weapon, a blade of the Lord. That is the key to the understanding that you need to have in order to understand why we suffer. You have to understand this point. And it's absolutely crucial. My, my, good, my good friend uh, WB, um, he lives in the States, he's actually the man who is probably most responsible for my conversion to Christianity. Um, He's the one who would spend hours and hours on the phone with me, walking me through the Bible, walking me through the exegesis, um, explaining the context, and, and mostly it was just him talking and me listening. I mean, that's, that's the typical pattern with our conversations. But he explained to me all of this stuff, and every time I would bitch and moan about how, how, how bad my life was, and he would bitch and moan about how bad his life was, because both of us were going through some very rough times at, at that um, during these conversations for, you know, very good reasons. Um, and, you know, the, the whole Kung flu nonsense certainly didn't help either because we both had to endure some very difficult, uh, isolations during our, during the whole international lockdown and everything else. Um, he, he pointed out to me that the way to look at God is, as a forge master, and I think I've done a podcast on this actually, or maybe a post. Um, but basically, God is trying to forge blades, weapons out of men. And here is why I keep saying that 
Christianity is a warrior's faith and that our God is a fighting God. This is not a weak-kneed, um, pathetic, sniveling, you know, let's all be nice to one another sort of nonsense. Um, this is not a... Uh, this is, yeah, episode 53, actually. Didactic Mind, episode 53. I, I talked about the Forge Master, how God forges blades. Um, Christianity is not about being weak and submissive in the face of evil. It's not, and it never was. And any pastor or preacher who says otherwise is lying and deserves to be defrocked. I'm sick and tired of listening to these, these, these charlatans telling us that the key to God's kingdom is to be, um, to be unresisting in the face of evil. No, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is very clear. You must resist evil. You must hate the wicked. You must hate the evildoer. But if he comes back to you and repents sincerely, then you forgive him. That's the way you approach sin and evil. You don't just say, oh, well, you know, his way is his way and my way is my way. I'm just going to tolerate it. Tolerance is not the message of the gospel. Tolerance got Jeroboam killed in the book of Kings. Um, if you go read about it, uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, I think it was. Um, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Jeroboam inherited the kingdom uh, because he promised to do what was righteous in God's eyes, and God gave him the chance uh, because his predecessors were all very corrupt. And Jeroboam tried to do what was righteous in God's eyes, but he was afraid, more afraid of his people than he was of God. This is the, the thing to understand. If you look at the, the mythology of the god Vulcan, and you look at the, uh, the sufferings endured by the prophets, this will tell you why you yourself suffer now. This will tell you why I suffer, why my friends suffer, why all of us experience pain and deprivation and hardship in our lives. It is because we are constantly being pushed and tested to see how we will respond. What is our breaking point? What is the point at which the steel that God is attempting to purify will break? If you look at the mythology of Vulcan, who is Vulcan or Hephaestus? I, I grew up reading the Greek legends and you know the background of the Greek legends is the same as the Roman background, but I, I know him as Hephaestus, um, but Vulcan is easy to say, so I'm going to stick with Vulcan, even though I actually mean Hephaestus. Okay, so just to clarify. But Vulcan is born lame. He's the son of Hera. Uh, he is an unwanted child. He's cast into the sea and he walks with a constant limp as a result. Uh, he's married to Aphrodite. That's the interesting part. He manages to win somehow. I forget exactly how the story goes, but eventually he gets married off to Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, love, sexuality, and so on. You can imagine how that goes. I mean, you know, lame guy with a gimp. Well, literally, the gimp marries the beauty queen. Like, how does this make any sense? The gimp marries the insta-thought. Like, <laughs> that's how ridiculous the idea is. Uh, but it happens somehow. And of course, being red-pilled types as we are, we know perfectly well how the story ends. 
Aphrodite cheats on Vulcan with uh, with Ares, um, god of war, because of course he's the Alpha Chad. Uh, he catches them. Vulcan catches them in bed together, casts a, 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 a big net over them because he's been cuckolded by his wife. And um, I forget the details of the story after that, but uh, you know, there's, it goes on and on. And, uh, the, the histories of the Olympian gods are a lot of fun to read. I highly recommend them if uh, if you have young boys, uh, especially. Definitely raise them on a steady diet of Aesop's fables. Um, the Jungle Book by Rudyard Kipling. You cannot go wrong with The Jungle Book. Uh, I have read The Jungle Book so many times, it's actually ridiculous. Uh, for me, it is staple literature. And the Gods and Goddesses. And if you're interested in this stuff, go look up um, the Castalia, the Castalia, Castalia Library uh, from, well, Castalia House um, or ArkhavenComics.com. They will have a subscription service where you can buy all of these beautiful leather-bound editions of these amazing books and you can get um, some really nice... Uh, keepsakes that you can pass on to your sons and your daughters eventually, um, which will serve them well to give them a foundation of civilizational values, of Western civilizational values. They will carry with them through the rest of their lives. It's vitally important that you do this if you have kids, because we are rapidly approaching a point where the Western world is going to stop understanding how to make its own plumbing function. And that's not an exaggeration. If you keep importing the third world into the West, you will eventually get the third world. What is a characteristic of the third world? Well, I mean, I've lived in the third world for much of my life. Open sewers, people dying in the streets, malaria, typhus, cholera, disease. Um, it's not a very nice place to live, which is why when, you know, Third worlders get a chance. They will always flee to the West, pretty much. Um, they don't want to stay in the third world. And there's no reason why they would want to stay in the third world. So when you have a chance to build something for your people, for your, for your offspring, um, for your progeny, give them this opportunity. You know, it will help, it will help them and it will help you. So that's how you build up civilizational capital. You pass on the great works of the past to your children. And that will help them through the tests that will come, through the forging process that will come. Now, coming back to our buddy Vulcan, what, what did he have to go through? Well, he had to go through everything. He had to go through every possible traumatic event, pretty much, that you could back in the ancient world. Um, and what did he become? He became the most reliable and valuable uh, member of Zeus's, uh, yeah, Zeus's, not Jupiter's, Zeus's um, uh, support staff, if you will. He became the one Bravo that the Alpha absolutely needed. Why? Because he controlled the Alpha's weapons. Vulcan, Hephaestus, was the one who forged Zeus's lightning bolts. He was the one who forged the weapons that the gods used to fight against the titans. He was the one that forged the weapons that the gods used to fight against the mythical ancient monsters of, of Greek imagination. 
without Vulcan, Olympus wouldn't exist. He was the forge master, if you will, the steel maker who created the conditions for which, um, or the conditions that the gods needed to sustain their lives on Olympus. That was him. That was the guy who made all that possible. Why? Because he had been tested and broken, literally broken, until he found his purpose. That is the nature of what you're going through. You are being forged. You are being pushed, cleansed of impurities. You're not going to like the process. It's not fun. It's, there's, there's nothing enjoyable about it. It's a miserable, horrible experience. You will be hammered and beaten and thumped and plunged into cold water and then taken out and put back into the flame and hammered and thumped and beaten and plunged back into the cold water and back into the flame and so on until such time as the impurities in you have been chased out or at least have been chased out to the point where your steel can be used as a blade. That is where the suffering comes from. Again, look at all the prophets. Look at Jonah. What did he go through? He ran away from his duty. I mean, God told him, you will go to Nineveh and tell them that if they don't change their ways, I'm going to destroy them the same way that I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk to the people of Nineveh. I don't want to, you know, tell them that their city is going to be blotted out. Um, I, I, I don't want to hurt these people. So he ran away from his duty. And God caught up with him, cast him into the belly of a fish. What did he have to endure? He essentially had to endure death. He essentially had to descend right into the gates of hell. Um, Jonah was not, or the book of Jonah doesn't really contain a metaphorical description of hell. That's, as I said, uh, or as I, as I wrote um, in a past post from a, maybe a week or two back, the nature of hell is such that the gates are locked from within. It's a place of complete and utter darkness and isolation. No contact, no ability to speak to anyone, no warmth, no love, no hope of any kind. It's a place of eternal suffering and damnation precisely for that reason, because there is no hope of escape. There is no way to get out. There is no chance of a reprieve. You cannot get away from the punishment. You're there, you're stuck in eternal isolation, and there's no way of moving away from it. If that doesn't terrify you, it bloody well should. This, when Jonah writes about what he suffered, or it is as it is written in the book of Jonah, I mean, I don't go so far as to say it was absolutely written by Jonah. I don't know. Um, the book of Jonah just cuts off at the end. I mean, like it doesn't end in any recognizable way. Um, what happens to him? Well, he comes out of it and he, and he prays to the Lord and he begs forgiveness for what he's done. And he praises the Lord and he says, Father, well, not, not Father, but Lord, you are, you are God. You have shown me mercy. I thank you for uh, everything you've done for me. And God rescues him. 
takes him out of the fish and, you know, puts him back on dry land. And he says, okay, now you've gone through that. Get your butt over to Nineveh and do your duty. And Jonah does it. And the people of Nineveh respond and stop their sinning. Again, this is not metaphorical. This is real. This is, it's written from the perspective of somebody who actually went through all of this stuff, who actually went through the pain and the misery. So don't think of it as just some eh, fanciful tale of being swallowed by fish. If you think of it in terms of being swallowed by a fish or a whale or whatever, and you go back to those same preachers who say, oh, well, you know, we've seen cases of people swallowed whole by whales and then cast back out later on, they've been fine. Guys, come on, I mean, you're missing the point. You're really missing the point. It's, got, it's not about the whale it's, or the fish or whatever. It's about the experience of going deep into the depths of hell itself and then coming back out again. That's why in, I think, the Gospel of Matthew, I think, um, Jesus says, uh, you will be given the sign of Jonah or something like that. And you won't recognize it because you're too hard-hearted and stubborn. Uh, and you will reject it. And no, everybody's like, what are you talking about? Sign of Jonah? What the heck? What are you on about, dude? And what he's actually saying is this, Jesus will go through this exact experience of falling deep into the, into the gates of hell and coming back out of them again, being raised up out of them. That's the point he's trying to make. So, what else in the Old Testament can you point to and say, you know, God is, is, is trying to push people in ways that they don't want to be pushed? Um, the classic example is the book of Job. Job chapter 1, God is sitting with all of his host arrayed around him, and he's saying, look at Job, that guy, you know, what a great guy he is. And Satan, although, okay, this is where we get into a technical diversion. If you go look at Dr. Michael Heiser's lecture on the subject, um, in the original Hebrew, the word is not Satan as a proper noun. It's not, um, you know, it, it's not, he's not referred to in the same way that you would say didact or uh, Master Chief or John 117 or Bob or Jill or Jane. It's not, it's not said in those terms. It's not, this is the name Satan. This is the person referred to as Satan. It's not a proper noun. The actual term used is ha-satan. Uh, ha-satan, meaning the Satan or the adversary. So it's really, it's, it's a job title almost that the original Hebrew is talking about somebody who is there, his job is as an oppressor, as, as an adversary. And he comes over to God and he says, yeah, well, the reason Job is so uh, such a great guy, and he's so worshipful and thankful to you, is because you've given him everything. He's never been tested. Take away everything he has, and then see if he will praise you the same way that you think he does. And God kind of looks at him and says, well, I mean, he doesn't look at him, but he's, he, he says to Ha-Satan, the adversary, um, okay, prove it. Put up or shut up. And he says to the adversary, Go down and take away, you know, do what you will with Job up to until, you know, but you can't kill him. You can do whatever you like to everyone around him, but you can't kill him. 
Now, this passage is revealing for a number of reasons. The first of which is that it should give you great hope, paradoxically. Because, what does this passage mean? It means that there are limits to the evil one's power. Satan has terrible power. Lucifer has tremendous power. He is the prince of this world. That is true. You can't escape that fact. He is the evil one. He is the light bringer. He is the, the ruler of an architect of the kingdom of evil. He is the prince of a fallen, broken realm. But his power is limited. He does not have infinite power. He can only do what God allows him to do. He has free will, but his free will is circumscribed. God has the power to crush him with but a thought, if he wanted to. Of course, the problem for God is that if he were to do it, he would, he would only be able to do it by completely eliminating all free will and by turning us into unthinking robots, and that's not what he wants. At any rate, Satan goes down, or no, again, the adversary goes down and completely wipes out Job's life. I mean, he kills his wife, kills his children, destroys his farms, takes away his lands, kills all his cattle, um, reduces him to utter poverty, covers his body with uh, sores and boils, um, and just makes him a fearsome, uh, a, a terrible and pitiable creature. It reduces him to groveling on the ground, effectively. And what happens to Job? Well, Job, throughout all of this, and throughout all of his discussions with God, uh, I don't think his wife dies, actually. I, I, I was probably wrong about that. Because uh, I, I seem to remember his wife basically coming up to him and saying, curse God and die, or something like that. And um, Job says, no, whatever happens to me, I will never curse God. And he maintains this. And it's, it's a long, long, long back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth between Job and his friends. And his friends keep advising him, you know, this or that or the other. And honestly, I mean, um, it's a very long and kind of challenging book. Uh, but there's a lot of quite flowery language, which I'm sure must have given the translators absolute fits trying to go from the very limited vocabulary of ancient Hebrew to modern English. I'm, I'm sure it was extremely difficult. Uh, but at any rate, we have the book of Job. And what happens at the end? God puts Job through all of these terrible tests, or rather, he allows him to be put through these terrible tests. And what happens? Job comes out of it with his faith in God strengthened and with his beliefs strengthened. And God rewards him for it by giving him far more than he lost. So he forged Job into a weapon because he used Job to point out to Job's friends where they were wrong, where they had made mistakes. And uh, he wasn't very happy with his friends. I mean, it's, it's, uh, the Lord's anger was kindled against Job's friends and, and so on and so forth towards the end of the book. What happens in, oh, I don't know, well, um, Chronicles, or is it Chronicles or Kings? I forget. Um, at any rate, uh, if you look at Elijah and Elisha, uh, what happened with the prophet Elijah? I mean, he was given tremendous powers by God, and he was told to take on the, the priests of Baal and, and all the rest of it, and to 
to wipe them out utterly, and he did. I mean, there's the the, the scene in 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 that that book where um, Elijah basically Elijah basically tells uh, the 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 king of the kings of Israel and Judea, I think. Uh, to gather all the priests in one place. I, I, I do apologize if I'm butchering, well, I am butchering scripture. I, I, I really do apologize for that. I am not a biblical scholar. I'm just trying to, you know, pick and choose bits of the, the, the scripture that, that show the basic point. Um, if I get the references wrong or I get parts of the narrative wrong, I, I, I'm really sorry. Um, that's on me. You know, I'm, I don't know the Bible chapter and verse. I really don't. I just know the core of the stories and I understand the point. But if I get a reference wrong here and there, please try to understand. I'm just trying to make a point overall. So try not to be too literal um, when I speak of these things. What is what happens to Elijah? I mean, he gathers all the priests and he says, Okay, if you if you really believe that your God, Baal, is greater than the God of Israel, then prove it. Um, again, put up or shut up. Uh, sacrifice a bull and put its its carcass on on a on a on an altar surrounded by wood. And if your god exists, let him call down fire and burn up everything. And they, the priests of Baal, you know, do exactly that. And they cry out to their god, and they they wail and they moan, and they even start cutting themselves with knives in order to get the attention of their god, so that the blood. He will see the blood and take pity and mercy and whatever. I mean, whatever, whatever, and, and, and so on. And Elijah stands there mocking them, saying, Guys, maybe your God's asleep. You know, blow your horns louder. You need to wake him up because he's obviously not paying attention to you. And to no avail, nothing happens. And then Elijah says, Okay, let's do the same on my side and cut up the bull and lay it out on a byre of wood and, and on an altar and... Then he says, okay, bring some water, dig a trench around the, the whole thing, bring some water and pour it into the trench so the trench is filled up and then pour lots more water on top of the bowl and the wood so that it's completely wet so that there's absolutely no doubt, no question that there is no way for this wood to be lit on fire. Can't be done. Don't question that if a miracle happens that anything man-made had anything to do with it. So all of this happens. Elijah prays to the Lord, and the Lord sends down fire, and it consumes everything. All the, you know, the, the bull, the animal, the wheat, uh, the sacrificial offerings, everything just gets burned up. And then what does Elijah do? He takes all the priests of Baal um, out, basically, into the, like, into the hills and slaughters them all with a sword. Um, some of my more bloodthirsty Christian friends have said that's a really funny scene, and I, I can't really argue with them. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. It, it is, it is pretty awesome. Um, I have to agree with that. It is pretty awesome because you know, uh, it, it sounds very unChristian, but the fact is, we are commanded to hate the wicked and hate the evil. And the priests of Baal. I mean, <laughs> when you read the Bible, you have to understand something. As dense as it is, as long as it is, it's actually an incredibly narrow book. It doesn't give you all of this history behind it and around it and through it. Um, the stuff about uh, the flood, for instance. I mean, the, the passages about the flood are very limited. They don't give you any of the uh, scope and scale and the, and the sheer magnitude of what might have happened. I don't, I mean, did it really happen? 
Honestly, there probably was some kind of gigantic flood somewhere in the distant past. The, ge the geological and geographic evidence very much makes a case for it. We just don't know if you know the, the story of creation absolutely supports it. Look, I don't know. I mean, I don't take any strong position on it. I just think that we should find out. I think there's enough evidence in the biblical narrative that matches with what we see in the ground and in history around us. We should keep our, our minds open. I mean, it's very clear that the story of creation, of, of the, the, the beginning of the universe, actually matches what Genesis chapter 1 says pretty closely. So if that's the case with Genesis chapter 1, maybe we should kind of pay attention to Genesis chapter, was it 6 to six through 10, I think it was? Maybe we should pay attention because it kind of hangs together. It kind of makes sense. At any rate, um, the point I think that I'm trying to make here is very clear. Every single great prophet, every single great achiever in the name of God suffered through terrible trials. Elijah, after having done all this, ran into the desert and begged God to kill him because he couldn't stand the responsibility and the, the burden thrust upon him. He suffered tremendously out there. Why? Because that's what God needed him to do. Now, from a human perspective, this all sounds very sadistic. It sounds as though God is dicking with us deliberately to make us suffer, to make us brutalized, to, 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 to force us to our knees. And you, the, you know what? He is. And that's the truth. He is doing it to us on purpose. Or at least he's letting it happen to us on purpose. There's a reason behind it. There is a great video uh, of a pastor. I forget uh, exactly what his name is. I'm going to look him up now. It's, um, but it's going to be in tomorrow's great Monday Dact um, browser buster. And it is, ah, here we go. It is from a, uh, a pastor named uh, Paul Washer. And it's called An Urgent Message for Young Christian Men. And it talks about how we have lost our way from what Scripture says. We have failed to root our lives in the Word of God. And because of that, we have a culture around us that tries very hard to break us and corrupt us and destroy us. And it doesn't prepare us for the tests we're going to face. Our lives would be infinitely easier if we just followed God's will and God's word. We would not have to deal with a corrupt and decadent culture trying to teach us that up is down and two plus two equals five and men can be women and women can be men um, and that homosexuality is good and right and justified and all of this other nonsense, and it is nonsense, we wouldn't have that problem because we would have rooted ourselves in an understanding of the world that corresponds with natural law. And natural law, having been created by an intelligence, a god, the god, would make sense. We actively rebel against that. What you're seeing right now is a culture in rebellion, broken against God's law. And this is not new. I mean, this is nothing surprising or new. I've talked about this before. Why did God order the extermination of the Canaanites? Well, there's a video about it um, from Cross-Examined, I think it was, where Alyssa Childers talks about uh, 
uh, why the Canaanites were exterminated with an, uh, an expert on biblical history. And as he points out, from Canaanite source documents, we know this from Canaanite sources, the Canaanites were every bit as degenerate as we are today, more so, in fact. Did they practice homosexuality, incest, bestiality, necrophilia, um, pedophilia? Did they do all of these horrible things? Yes, that's what the documents tell us. That's what their own documents tell us. This isn't news to anybody in, in our day and age. We just don't want to see it. That's all. We have reached this low point in our culture because we have gone away from what God taught us and told us to do. And it is up to us as men to go through that forging process so that we can be used as weapons to fight against this decadence. That's the reason you're being tested. That's the reason you're in pain. That's the reason you are going through hell right now. So what do you do when you're in that process? Now, I'm not going to tell you grin and bear it because I had to go through and still have to go through a lot of pain. Um, I know my testing is nowhere near over. I mean, I'm in a pretty good place in my life right now, but that's not guaranteed to last and it won't last. There will come a time where I will have to go through really painful things. It could be tomorrow. It could, I, you know, I could wake up tomorrow and discover my whole world has fallen apart. And I don't know if I'll be ready for that. I really don't. I don't have a clue. I don't know how I'm going to handle truly devastating events in my life. I just don't have any idea. But I know now what it, or I know now, I don't know now what it will take to break me. I don't know that. Because you can't know it until you encounter it. I just know that what I've been through was not enough. So more is probably needed. And unfortunately, I will probably have to go through it. I'm, I'm not looking forward to it. No one should look forward to pain and suffering. That's, there's something seriously wrong with you if you look forward to pain and suffering. Um, something wrong with your head and you need to get it checked on. But in order to endure this, how do you get through it? How do you prevent yourself from feeling overwhelmed? Here are a few tips on how to do it from my own experience. Number one, most importantly, get on your knees and pray. You, you need to understand you're being driven to your knees for a reason. You have to be there in order to get back up onto your feet. You have to know how bad it's going to get before you can stand up, look at the world, smile, and say, you hit like a bitch. That's what it's going to take. And it's not fun. It's not easy to endure this. Believe me, I know. I've been through it. I'm going through it right now. There's nothing pleasant about this process. Get on your knees and pray, if you can. And you know, there's a friend of mine um, in somewhere in the world. I'm not going to say where. He's a longtime reader of my site. He's... Uh, he's not able to get on his knees for reasons, okay? I mean, physically not able to. Okay, fine. Bow your head and pray. I mean, it's a metaphorical getting on your knees in that, in that situation, but just pray. That's the single most important thing. The moment you start doing that, the moment you start con that, that connection with the numinous that is in you, 
things will start to get better. It will take time, but they will get better. And you will be able to learn how to feel that connection. Eventually, you'll learn there's a certain feeling within you that tells you somebody out there is listening, and he's got your back. It's a very, very powerful feeling. But you won't know it. You won't know what it is until you actually start. Number two, discipline. Inculcate that discipline of a daily prayer rule. I call it battle meditation. I really think of it that way. Every night before I go to sleep, I pray. You know, five minutes, ten minutes, however long it takes. Sometimes it's only two minutes. Um, I pray because it is literally preparing yourself for battle. And I have to tell you, ever since I've been doing that, I've slept better than ever before, I think. It's very rare for me to have really bad dreams. It happens from time to time. It's very rare for me to wake up feeling like, ugh, I'm so tired, I, I can't get out of bed. No, it doesn't really happen to me anymore. Number three, and this this is Jocko Willink's advice. And, you know, I don't know what Jocko believes. I don't really care either because he tells the truth. He tells it like it is. You have to take extreme ownership of your life. And this is hard. I mean, it is so hard. Why? Because what is extreme ownership? It means every single thing that is wrong in your life is your fault. Every single one. Every single time there's something in your life that doesn't go the way you want it to go, it's your fault. And you can't blame him or her or him or anyone else. You have to blame yourself. You have to blame yourself because you didn't do what you needed to do in order to make your life better the way you wanted it to be. And if that's on you and you accept it, you're the only one who can fix it. Jocko tells the story about um, SEAL training. And he, he talks about, I mean, SEAL training is unbelievably hard. And he talks about how even within the SEAL teams, there were always teams and sub-teams who would do better than each other. And during a training exercise, he observed, I think he was observing it. I don't know if he was participating or observing, but he observed one team that always came out ahead every single time, every single exercise, and one team that always came dead last. And he looked at the difference between the team that came first and the team that came last, and he found one very predictable pattern. The team that came first, whenever the exercise was over, they would all sit around and they would say to each other, you know, the, the, the commander of the unit would say, okay, boys, what went wrong? What could we have done better last time? And they would go around in a circle, starting with him, starting with the commander. He would say, he would put his hand up and say, okay, I missed that obstacle. I should have seen it coming. I'm going to make sure that next time we go through an obstacle course, I'm going to look for that. That's on me. That's my responsibility. And the next guy along would come along and say, uh, sir, I didn't check my rifle um, this morning, there's a one small piece of uh, equipment that I that I um, failed to look over, and uh, uh, as a result, my rifle wasn't in the condition it needed to be. Sir, I acknowledge this is my mistake. I accept it. I'm going to fix it. And the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy, and they would all go around, and they would all admit where they had gone wrong, and they would all take individual responsibility for what went wrong. And the team that came last every single time, the same pattern of behavior in reverse emerged. Every single one of them would blame everybody else. They would say, oh, yeah, I mean, that we didn't get the, the, 
the what the the dinghy up on the deck in time because that guy wasn't pulling his weight. Well, and you know Bob wasn't pulling his weight over on the other end. Bob would be like, well, "What the hell are you talking about, Jim? Uh, you know, what what were you doing? You were loafing the whole time. You weren't even you didn't even." respond to the command to get out of the dinghy until two seconds after we needed to. And of course we came last because it's your fault. You see the difference? You see the difference between a positive, engaged mindset, which says it's my responsibility and I have to take charge, and a lazy, whiny bitch mentality that says it's everyone else's fault? You see the difference between the two things? That's what you need. That's what you have to build. And that's why I wrote that post about building your brothers up. You have to build your brothers around you up into men who believe in themselves, who believe in their own individual responsibility, who take responsibility for themselves. And that's that leads to the next point, which is really important. You have to surround yourself with high-quality people. This comes down to psychology as well. You need to be around people who are optimistic who believe in themselves, who are strong, mentally tough, who are better than you. You know, seriously, like, I'm saying this as somebody who is in a situation right now where I'm smarter than pretty much anyone else I'm around. I mean, people are intimidated by me. They're they're actually intimidated by me. They don't know me personally because I'm, honestly, I make every effort to avoid them because A, I'm an extreme introvert, B, I'm kind of an ass, and I know it. See, I don't like people in general, so, you know, I try to avoid them. And D, you know what, I'd rather just nick off and go straight to the gym and lift heavy shit than stand around and talk to people, obviously. So I have this reputation of being kind of fearsome and scary because everyone around me is like, dude, how do you know this stuff? How do you know what the answer to that question is? How do you know, before the guys even said it, what what he wants. How do you know how to build a spreadsheet? Like, I've been doing this for years. This, For me, this is trivial. This is easy. But what I've found is that the people around me who observe what I do and see me pushing forward and taking charge and, you know, taking the initiative, they themselves feel inspired. They They want to be part of that success story. And the ones who don't, the gammas, the the envious little jerks who constantly want to pull people down, those are the types who stand around bitching and 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 sniping and saying, oh, he's he's kind of a jerk. He's he's not very people friendly. He's like blah 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 blah. And the people who aren't like that, who aren't envious, and who understand the need to get results, they look at it and like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, he's not necessarily very friendly, but he gets things done. And actually, he's willing to take the time to work with people. By that same token, I also try to surround myself with better men, people who are better than me. Um, this is what I miss the most, actually, about being in the U.S. when I was there. Um, in my martial arts school, I was constantly surrounded by much more talented and skilled fighters. And I had to learn the hard way you know, in very bloody fashion sometimes, how to fight. And it hurt. It was painful. But the thing that made me happy was being around these guys that I respected and loved in a brotherhood where they would force me to become better. 
And I would admire these men and I would try to become like them. Strong, tough, respectful, resilient, honorable, decent. These are the qualities you must inculcate in yourself. And you can do it best by finding other men who are like that. Find somebody who is, who has qualities that you admire and spend time with that guy. Learn from him. Build yourself up on the same basis that he has and you'll become like him over time. This is so important for young men today, for old men too. Find somebody who is what you want to be and become like him. And that's crucial. Find yourself a role model that matches up to the ancient heroes of the past, to Androcles and the lion, you know, that Androcles uh, was sacrificed, supposed to be thrown to uh, uh, the lions and, and he befriended a lion by, you know, he t- took a thorn out of the lion's paw and the, the lion got captured and, and you know, so on. I mean, go, go read the story. It's a great story. Horatius at the bridge. Um, Leonidas and the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. Uh, you know, who else? I mean, go through the list, go through the roster of, of legends of the past, great men who stood against impossible odds. And you'll find these things in common. Number one, they prayed. They were respectful of the power of the gods. Number two, they inculcated discipline. They believed in being disciplined. Number three, they took ownership. And number four, they surrounded themselves with good brothers. This is the meaning of the forge of Vulcan. This is the process that builds you into a weapon. When you are being pushed and tempered and broken down and quenched again and again and again to get rid of the impurities, you want to know a way to short-circuit that whole process? Surround yourself with better men and do exactly what I just told you. All of that, you know, all those four steps. Do those things and you will get to that point where you are not just a man in your own right, but you are a weapon to be used by a warrior god as part of a fighting faith that is aimed straight at the heart of the evil in this world. You, you will become that weapon that will pierce the heart of evil and bring back the kind of justice that we need in this world. Make your decision and make it quickly. Because we don't have the time to sit around equivocating while you figure out which side you're on. Make up your mind and figure out whether you want to be in the fight or observing the fight. As for me, I've made my decision a long time ago. I decided I want to be in this fight. You coming? You going to join us? Or are you going to stand around wringing your hands like a little bitch? You got to figure that out. I'm not going to make that decision for you. But the sooner you make it, the better your life will become. And with that, uh, we are well and truly out of time. I want to thank you for your time and attention. It's a pleasure as always. Please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. I really appreciate it if you spread the word around. Uh, people do seem to get a lot of value out of my podcasts. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from my brothers uh, around the world. And um, I'd really appreciate it if you do the same. Let me know what you think in the comments. Uh, this has been Didactic Mind, episode 77, I believe. 77, yes. Uh, the Forge of Vulcan. 
and I am Didact, signing off.